0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. In the House of Commons, all parties agreed to investigate whether the large grocers are using inflation as a cover for price gouging. We'll look at the arguments on both sides. And a new book looks at how modern medicine is complicating the way we die. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A study of tens of thousands of people in Scotland found that one in 20 who had been sick with COVID reported not recovering at all. And another four in 10 said they had not fully recovered months later. Six to 18 months after their bouts of COVID, people reported persistent symptoms including breathlessness, palpitations, and confusion or difficulty concentrating at a rate three times as high as uninfected people. Those patients also experienced elevated risks of more than 20 other symptoms related to the heart, respiratory health, muscle aches, mental health, and the sensory system. The research is published in Nature Communications. Iceland has retained the top spot as the world's best pension system, according to the Mercer CFA Institute Global Pension Index. It ranks countries based on their retirement income systems' adequacy, sustainability and integrity. In Iceland, you must have lived in the country for at least 40 years from ages 16 to 67 to take full advantage of its income-related old-age pension. The Netherlands and Denmark came second and third in the ranking of 44 countries, Canada ranked 13th, and the U.S. came in at number 20. New research finds that the Black Death, which swept through Europe in the mid-1300s, left a huge genetic mark that still affects our health today. Researchers tested the DNA of more than 200 skeletons from the period and found that those with a certain genetic mutation were 40% more likely to survive the plague. That mutation became more common as it was passed along through the generations, but it has also been linked to autoimmune diseases such as the inflammatory bowel disease Crohn's. Bottom line, what helped keep our ancestors alive 700 years ago could be damaging our health today wonder why you're a mosquito magnet? A new study finds it probably has to do with the way you smell. Neurobiologists at Rockefeller University in New York found that people who are most attractive to mosquitoes produce a lot of a certain chemical on their skin. They asked 64 volunteers to stick their arms into a controlled space filled with mosquitoes to test the hypothesis. The results saw several scents tested, with some proving more attractive to the blood-loving bugs than others. Actress Anna Mae Wong is set to become the first Asian American to be featured on U.S. currency. She was born Wong Lu Tsong in Los Angeles in 1905 to Chinese immigrants. She is considered the first Chinese American film star in Hollywood and is the fifth and final woman to be individually featured on the quarter this year. The quarters will depict George Washington on one side and Wong on the other. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week was all about inflation, especially in the cost of food. Are the large grocers passing on legitimate increases in their own costs, or are they using it as an excuse to price gouge? In the House of Commons, politicians of all stripes voted unanimously to investigate so-called greedflation. I asked left-wing economist Jim Stanford for his take on the evidence. First of all, I want to talk about this whole business of greedflation. A lot of the private sector analysts say it doesn't really exist. There's no evidence for it. Do you have evidence for it?
2: Well, I don't know about the term greedflation, uh, Libby. That's obviously, you know, a hot potato but the evidence is overwhelming that corporate profits in Canada have widened as inflation has taken off. And I don't know why we should be surprised by that. It is, after all, companies increasing their prices. That is the literal cause of inflation. And uh, corporations have been doing far more than just passing on higher costs. They've been collecting bigger profits, and their profits as a share of GDP are now higher than they have ever been in history. So while all of us are paying through the teeth, uh, corporate profits uh, have have risen spectacularly.
1: The argument is that even though uh, there are record profits in the grocery sector, for instance, the actual margin, the profit margin on grocery items is still in the low single digits, sort of
2: 3-4%. Well, that, uh, there's a number of kind of, I think, misleading and, and rather kind of goal-seeking aspects to that argument. First of all, the thing about grocery stores is most of the cost is the stuff they buy and then put on the shelves. But that doesn't mean it's a quote-unquote low-margin business. If you measure the profits that they're making relative to the capital that these companies have actually invested in their stores and their direct operating expenses, uh, it's very healthy. So that doesn't mean it's a skin-of-the-teeth operation. I can assure you Loblaws and Metro and Sobeys make very good money relative to the investment that their owners have made. Uh, Secondly, the claim that margins have been stable is also very misleading. First of all, it's not true if you compare it to the whole pandemic period. Overall profits in supermarkets are about twice what they were before the pandemic. Uh, But secondly, even if the margin was stable, and I think it has increased, but even if it was stable, they're still profiting because the overall size of the revenue flow has grown because of inflation, and they're still taking their big chunk of it. Uh, So uh, I do not uh, buy the efforts of these commentators who are very reluctant for whatever reason to blame a business for anything. Uh, I don't think their efforts uh, are convincing here.
1: And as it turns out, most Canadians believe there is such a thing as greedflation.
2: Well, and it's not just in supermarkets either. Like I think supermarkets have been probably getting a bit more than their fair share of the critical attention here. I'm not saying it's not deserved. We should look at how much money they're making and why they're doing more than just passing on higher costs. They're actually jacking up prices more than that. But this is a problem throughout the economy. You can look at other sectors, energy, housing, telecommunications, uh, banking. These are also places where very large, powerful companies have done much more than pass on higher costs uh, to consumers. And this is what explains why across the whole economy, this is undeniable, corporate profits after tax, now 20% of GDP goes into their coffers. And that is uh, five percentage points higher than before the pandemic and much higher than our uh, long-term history. So uh, companies uh, have taken advantage of the uncertainty, the desperation of consumers, the disruptions in supply chains, and they've uh, increased their profits quite notably. That isn't the only cause of inflation, but it is certainly one of the causes.
1: And isn't that just supply
2: and demand? Well, listen, uh, if I came out of the desert uh, almost dying of thirst, and somebody was there offered to sell me a bottle of water for $20, you know, that could be supply and demand as well. And the Bank of Canada would look at that situation and say, you know what, the price wouldn't be $20 if the person walking out of the desert half-dead didn't have $20 to spend, so let's take away some of their purchasing power to get the price back down. That is absolutely a case of blaming the victim. And what we should focus on is getting more water to the edge of the desert and, in the meantime, probably telling that person you can't sell water for 20 bucks a bottle. And to a lesser extent, that's exactly what's happening with the other necessities of life we have here. Energy, housing, food. Those are things you don't have a choice to buy. And uh, where companies have taken advantage of uh, uh, the unique circumstances after the pandemic, to increase prices far more than they needed to.
1: The Bank of Canada has doubled down on its commitment to get inflation down uh, to 2% by raising interest rates, and we've seen some pretty big hikes already. Most economists say that's what you have to do. You are saying that that cure for inflation is worse than the disease.
2: I think it will be, frankly. Uh, Interest rates have gone up dramatically uh, uh, from uh, 0.25% to 3.25% for the bank's rate, and there's more to come. Mortgage rates on a variable mortgage have tripled. So that means uh, consumers are going to be less interested in borrowing money uh, for a house or a car. It means investors are going to be less interested in borrowing to invest in new capacity, which would help to ease some of those supply chain issues that we've been experiencing. Uh, And it also means that consumer spending, even if you you already have your house, your consumer spending is going to go down because you're now paying hundreds of dollars extra on on interest. So uh, there's lots of evidence already that Canada's economy is slowing sharply. Um, We've lost about 100,000 jobs in the last four months. Our GDP growth has slowed almost to zero as of July. That's the most recent data we have. It might very well be in negative territory already, which means the recession has already started Uh, by the time we uh, get the data. So ironically, the higher interest rates are actually increasing inflation uh, in the near term. 30% of our consumer bundle, what, what we spend on, is housing. And housing costs are going up because of higher interest rates, because of the mortgage expenses and higher rent. So I do think that there's a more nuanced and balanced and gradual way that we could get at this problem of inflation without throwing the whole economy into a recession.
1: Okay, Jim Stanford, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Libby, thank you for calling.
1: Bye-bye. That was economist Jim Stanford of the Center for Future Work. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how modern technology is complicating the way we die.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. Fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Modern medical technology can extend our lives in ways that would have been unimaginable just decades ago, but it can also leave patients in the gray zone between life and death, robbing them of important human moments at the end. I talked with ICU doctor and former paramedic Blair Bigham about his book, Death Interrupted, How Modern Medicine is Complicating the Way We Die.
3: I've had a couple experiences as a paramedic and then in my medical training of situations where people were attached to machines, you know, with good intention. Doctors and nurses were trying to save their life. But at some point, it was becoming clear that all the technology and science and medicine in the world wasn't going to turn things around. But then we were kind of stuck in this space where you're not dead yet, but. These machines are preventing you from sort of crossing over to the other side. And so as I started to look into what to do about this as a physician, as a a human being, I began to get really fascinated by this sort of modern dilemma that we have.
1: You talk about the space between life and death.
3: It's a, a weird space. It's a new space. It never used to exist before we had machines like mechanical ventilators and dialysis. You know, if your organs failed, you just died. You went from alive to dead pretty quickly, and there wasn't much anyone could do about it. But now we have all of this technology, well-intentioned. It saves a lot of lives. But every once in a while, you know, we reach our limits. The fact of the matter is we're all going to die one day, and at some point, uh, no amount of medicine is going to change that. But... Being attached to these machines, being tethered in bed, you get to this very undignified place of suffering where there's no hope that you'll return to any type of meaningful function. But the machines are are just not letting you die.
1: Are we using this technology indiscriminately? Not when we apply it at the beginning.
3: I think when we first, as doctors, when I first meet a patient who's on the brink of death, I am intent on reversing that process, right? I want to save that person's life. And so I apply the technology with the hope that I can do that. But over time, I think what we what we might be able to say is that we're indiscriminately continuing that technology rather than face the fact of the matter and have the difficult conversations and make the difficult um, actions to uh, pull back that technology and let nature take its course. Although I understand the humanistic aspect of wanting to save their life, of wanting to keep them around, because that's what we would want for all of our loved ones, when it's not possible, it does become a little bit selfish. And I mean no pejorative by saying that. It's totally natural. I've I've seen it happen time and time again where our, our love and grief are so powerful that we just can't come to let go of people. But there comes a time when that's exactly what, what the loving decision is, and it's hard for doctors to communicate that. Um, and sometimes it's hard for families to hear that. And so we take the path of least conflict, of least resistance, which is just to stick with the status quo.
1: Sometimes it's the families that say, do everything. There's this famous McKitty case.
3: The McKitty uh, case is particularly tragic because she was brain dead. There, There was no gray zone or liminal space. She had died, but her family was not accepting of the brain death diagnosis. And I understand that, you know, when someone's brain dead, they they have a heartbeat, they have blips on the monitor, they have color in their skin, Um, they have warmth, Uh, you know, they look alive, even though they're not.
1: It's also a question of resources. Uh, Before she was finally unplugged, uh, she cost the system $1.5 million US and uh, here in Canada, that's a lot of money that could have been used for something else.
3: It's a lot of money. It's over, you know, it's over 400 days of an ICU bed as this case worked its way through the court system. And we never actually got to a decision to pull the plug uh, in that case. The heart stopped on its own. It gave out. um, And then the family was accepting that um, she, what what the term I use is dead, dead. (laughs) You know, there was no question about it in anybody's minds at that point. Um, and, and so these are very difficult situations and you're right, it's expensive. And if we decided that we would let every religion or every family define death on their own terms, well, what would that mean for our system? We would be, I uh, I hate to, I don't mean to be crass, but we would be sort of warehousing dead bodies and feeding them and watering them and, and oxygenating them to no end. And I don't think that's an ethical position to take regardless of the cost.
1: You refer to her as being brain dead. Uh, Us lay people, we think of that as something very cut and dried. Uh, But in your book, you sort of explain how to arrive at that, and it, it seems pretty complicated.
3: In Canadian society, we have always, in many societies, we've always accepted brain death as death. Uh, you are unable to be a person. You are unable to have consciousness. You are unable to breathe for your own, um, and so you are dead. Uh, brain death didn't exist before we had machines that could keep oxygenating cir- uh, oxygen circulating through your blood, uh, because if you were brain dead, you were your heart would stop, everything would stop because you weren't able to breathe. So it's really technology that's facilitated the term brain death. And the beautiful thing about that is thousands of people are recipients of life-saving organs from brain-dead patients, um, which is a, a, mo- a modern marvel in medicine, really. Um, and it is a silver lining for many families when patients are uh, tragically uh, become deceased, when they, when they die under tragic circumstances. Many families are grateful for that legacy um, that the organs can provide. But that's not why we talk about brain death. As, as ICU doctors. We, we talk about brain death as ICU doctors because we need to help that body cross over to the other side and, and be laid to rest.
1: Thank you so much, Blair Bigham. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That was author and ICU doctor Blair Bigham. His new book is Death Interrupted, How Modern Medicine is Complicating the Way We Die. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things
0: Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy. Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.